News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I could have enough venom in one bite to kill a hundred blokes my size. Look at the coloration. Beautiful coloration. Hey, 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 hey. Whoa. Settle down, mate. Yo, you wouldn't want to take a whack off a snake this size. Well, I have a few irrational fears, as I know, I think everyone does. I'm a little bit claustrophobic. Giant spiders scare me, but not little ones. I don't like swimming where I can't see the bottom. And then there are snakes. I mean, the idea of a snake bite is terrifying, especially since treatment can be so limited. In fact, more than 100,000 people are killed every year because of a snake bite. So it's a good thing that our next guest has been working on fixing this. Dr. Stephen Hall is a snake bite expert and a lecturer in pharmacology at Lancaster University and joins us now. Thank you for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely pleasure to be here. Now, are you one of those people who just like loves snakes? Yes. That, that that's literally the only reason I even got into this field was uh, my PhD was actually in uh, breast cancer uh, uh, work. And pretty much I wanted to switch to something that was more niche, I guess we can say, um, and kind of feed that childhood interest I always had in snakes. But yeah, I just I just love them. Okay. It's as simple as that. Why? <laughs> what do you love about them? <laughs> it's uh, I. Uh, I think it's honestly just the fact that I think they're gorgeous. Like, I just think they're pretty. They are such amazing creatures. Like, since I was a kid, just the fact that I was like, here's this legless creature that is so successful evolutionarily that it's just amazing that they've they've become what they are. And on top of that, then you've got the venom side of it as well, which is absolutely fascinating that these creatures have evolved over, you know, literally millions and millions of years. These absolutely lethal cocktails of toxins that can, you know, injure and maim and kill, uh, mostly for prey, but also obviously can hurt humans as well. I just think they're really just fascinating creatures. So what is, why has it taken us to this point then, Dr. Hall, where we have so much trouble um, like curing people of a snake bite that it still causes us so many problems? So the real answer for that is that ultimately there unfortunately hasn't been much interest in developing a treatment for it commercially because it's just uh, ultimately the, the profit motive for snake bite is, you know, there's not really going to be much profit to be made uh, because the unfortunate reality is that most people that do get bitten by snakes are people who are impoverished, people that, uh, you know, live in very poor countries, really poor areas of countries. Um, and unfortunately, the, you know, modern medicine hasn't really caught up because a lot of companies just don't ultimately they you know they don't I, I don't want to sound mean to them but like they just don't really care and so they just don't really work on it on top of that uh the current treat mainstay treatment for for snake bite anti-venom i'm sure you know probably pretty much all of your listeners have at least heard about anti-venom um and it's somewhat effective depending on the snake bite depending on how quickly you get it and you know there's a whole host of issues but it's far from perfect um, but better than nothing. But realistically, the way antivenom is created is kind of, it's it's pretty similar to when it was first invented back in, I believe it was like the 1890s. Um, and just no real massive advances have been made in over a century in snake bite treatment. Okay, so then why, I guess? I mean, it still is something that affects an awful lot of people. Is it just that there wasn't enough money in it in the past? Pretty much, and especially with antivenom, it's incredibly expensive to make, uh, very labor-intensive. 
Um, and so realistically, the, the, the few handful of companies that would do at least a little bit of anti-venom work, uh, a lot of the time it would almost be done for like, you know, not quite philanthropic means, but, you know, almost like making just enough money to kind of make it uh, uh, sustainable. Um, but yeah, just incredibly expensive to make. And so because of that, and because again, it was typically sold to places where people just didn't have, you know, tons and tons of, of cash to pay for it. Um, ultimately, there wasn't just a lot of, of, you know, let's say market interest in mm-hmm. developing it any further. So then what is your approach? How is it different? So what I really want to do, and, and I should say we, because I'm, I'm certainly not the only one doing this. Uh, a lot of people from my old group back at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine um, have been working on looking at small molecule drugs rather than antivenoms for the treatment of snake bites. So antivenoms, they're, you know, uh, composed of antibodies, so pretty much really, really large biomolecules that have a lot of unique properties and can be beneficial in some cases. But there's other issues that um, exist with, with antivenom and that you know, antibodies are, they're huge. They have to be injected intravenously. You can't take it as like an oral tablet. Um, you need to have, and because of that, you need to you know, go to a, a doctor's office or, or some sort of medical clinic to have it administered. It has to be kept cold. So just having to keep antivenom on the cold chain, which you can imagine if you're in the you know, middle of a 45 degree day in rural Kenya or something, that can be very, very difficult to, to have. So by looking at small molecule drugs, um, they can be a lot more you know, stable than, than antivenom. Um, they can also be a lot more, um, they can be administered a lot of different ways. So you could potentially create like an oral tablet that maybe could be used in uh, just in the field or, or some sort of topical treatment that could be used to inject the drug, drugs exactly where the snake bite happened. Um, and so, and on top of that too, at least, well, at least in theory, um, drugs can potentially be a lot cheaper to produce as well um, than these than, than traditional antivenoms, which at least hopefully in the long term would result in the the treatment for these patients being just a lot more affordable and ultimately mm-hmm. less of a uh, burden on them. So even if they survive, they're not in debt the rest of their lives. Okay, so um, how far are you from making this a reality so that it could be more commonly used? The, the, realistically, it's still, I would guess, at least, you know, probably at least a decade or two away, because ultimately drug research takes, oh, drug research takes forever. It is, uh, so for example, to go, to create a brand new drug, um, a lot of people might already know the stat, but it costs between one and $2 billion to create a drug, or you can use a repurposed drug, which is something we've looked at a lot, which is pretty much repurposing a currently used drug for just a new purpose. So for example, when aspirin was, was repurposed to be used for people with high blood pressure, um, that was a repurposing of a currently available drug already known to be safe. And those types of drugs, you can usually get the cost down to maybe 40 to $80 million, which obviously is still high numbers, but in comparison, isn't that bad. But there's just so many steps along the way to, to test these drugs, um, you know, before uh, preclinically, so like in, you know, cell models, animal models, eventually in the clinical models, actually in people, to really prove that not only are they effective, but they're also completely safe and you know, you're know not gonna cause more harm than, than what you're helping. Um, and because of that, it just ultimately takes a long time. And, uh, but that being said, like we've got some really, really fantastic uh, data thus far where we've seen some incredible results at uh, the efficacy of some of these small molecule drugs that uh, can inhibit the venoms from a wide range of, of snake species. So. 
Um, in one recent study of mine, I was looking at two drugs um, put together. So there's a drug called uh, Verespletib. Um, that's a fantastic one that blocks a certain superfamily of, mm-hmm. of toxins. Um, and then two other drugs I've worked called DMPS and Marimostat, pretty much they target a different toxin family. And the short version is that by combining these two types of drugs together, we practically completely inhibited, uh, you know, the necrotic activity. So like that tissue damaging and destructive ability of certain snake venoms um, from snakes found in, uh, you know, Western Africa, in right. uh, Southern Africa, in, um, in the Americas, you know, totally different snakes, totally different venom profiles, yet the same drug combination was very effective. And so mm-hmm. that's very promising because if we can create something that's, effective, you know, you know, best case scenario around the world, then I mean, that would be that's ideal revolutionary. That, yeah, It'd that is great. Amazing. Now, I know you said you love snakes. Do you have some? Do you have pet snakes? Are you one of those people, Dr. Hall? I want one, but I don't have one yet. <laughs> so I always wanted one as a kid and my mom never let me, which, you know, was a little disappointing. Um, and pretty much when I moved to the UK, I, uh, I was looking at them. There's actually a pet shop, like a reptile store, literally like a five minute walk from me. And I started looking at their ball pythons. I was like, oh man, I want to get one of these. Um, but then my wife and I decided to have a kid instead. And I was like, well, I should probably kid. be responsible. Yeah. You no, know, maybe That's... focus on the kid and worry about a snake. Hey, adulting you know, is hard. Adulting, adulting is hard. Really Those hard. choices oh, are really hard to make. Don't, don't... The, the real life parts of adulting, it's it's tough. It is tough. I know these choices that you make, snake <laughs> kid. Uh, listen, Dr. Hall, thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Stephen Hall, snake bite expert, as you heard, and lecturer in pharmacology at Lancaster University. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to have our chat with Vaughn Palmer this morning. Now, Vaughn, of course, the political world, lots of talk about Brian Mulroney this morning. Did, did you have any stories? Yeah, I didn't really cover Brian Mulroney because I was on the provincial political beat, although he overlapped with four of the BC premiers that I covered. So occasionally things would happen here that (coughs) spilled over into federal politics and vice versa, Meech and free trade and so forth. Um, I did, however, get one of his famous telephone calls. So Mulroney was known for working the phones as prime minister and schmoozing uh, from one end of the country to the other. And on September the 14th, 1992, I, uh, my phone rang. I love that you know the date. Well, you'll know why in a minute. And in the uh, uh, voice came on and said, uh, I answered as Vaughn Palmer, and a uh, voice came on and said, hang on, please, for a telephone call from the prime minister. And I must admit, I reacted like the old Bill Cosby sketch. Who is this really, right? Like, why would Brian Mulroney be calling me? But when the voice came on, there was no mistaking. (laughs) I don't know if any voice impersonator ever figured out how to do Brian Mulroney, but when you heard that voice, you knew who it was. And here's what happened. My good friend, the editor emeritus of the Vancouver Sun, Bruce Hutchison, had died that day. Uh, Bruce was in his 90s. Mulrooney had named him to the Privy Council. He was the right honorable Bruce Hutchison when he died. And the Prime Minister had on occasion consulted Bruce on history and constitutional matters. And the other thing he knew was that Bruce was a good friend of mine and mentor. And the Prime Minister called me to express condolences. He said he imagined that I was a very sad journalist that day, and I was. 
And that was the extent of the phone conversation. We were in the middle of Meech Lake in the middle of a constitutional crisis. And I was just on that moment reminded that, uh, as I said, this guy worked the phones like no, like no prime minister before or since. Uh, of all the tributes that came in yesterday, and you've listed some of them, I was quite struck, Simi, by the social media posting from Shane Simpson, former BC cabinet minister, and quite struck by what he said. Mr. Mulroney, whose policies I rarely agreed with, came from a different era when values meant something, politics were vigorous, debates eloquent, very rarely, though, with the personal vindictiveness of today. He was a, from a breed of politicians across parties that the world could use more of. That's an NDP cabinet yeah. minister from BC. I quite struck with that. I think he makes a very good point. He really does. And that's what I have found so interesting about watching all of this unfold. And we're going to talk with John Ibbotson about that coming up in the next hour as well. But let's yeah, talk- and One other thing, Simi, yep. when, you've, when you've been gone from office for more than 30 years, <laughs> the obituaries are more generous. I don't know if he'd, if he'd had the bad luck to go back when he left office in 1993. I'm not sure the tributes would have been as well, eloquent or generous. Very true. Very, very <laughs> true, right? The, the lens of time uh, certainly changes things. So yes, more to come on that. But let's talk as well about some provincial politics this morning. So what is this Surrey Schools announcement that's oh, coming up? Yeah. Oh, boy. So it's only been a week since we got the budget. But you're seeing the government today uh, doing some cleanup on some of the fallout of that budget. So when they released the budget uh, Thursday last, uh, they boasted a great deal about the very ambitious capital plan in the budget. But when we looked at the list of projects, <coughs> new school projects, there was only one on the list, and Surrey's got a huge school crisis, double-decker portables and having to use portable you know, porta potties as washrooms and all that. And there was nothing, no new schools in Surrey. Uh, there was one new school, it was here in Victoria. The minister got asked, and basically she said, Well, you know, uh, we are building some schools in Surrey, and I've been out there to see the modular schools and all that. It, it was an excuse that was not accepted in Surrey, I hear to tell you. So today, 9.30, the education minister is in Surrey to announce uh, some new Surrey school projects. Big surprise. I thought they might hold off to closer to the election campaign to roll out some new schools for Surrey. But I think this is the government going, we better do damage control right away and get that list out. And I think that's what we're going to get at 9.30 this morning. And Good for Surrey. Uh, they know how to make noise out there. Uh, what, there are nine seats in the expanded legislature in Surrey. The NDP hold, what, six or seven seats out already out in mm -hmm. Surrey. So, yeah. This is uh, they're so, worried and they're, yeah. they're playing defense. This is so interesting to me because it's, I think it kind of indicates that whatever tactic they were taking with the way they did the budget last week didn't work. 
No, no, they're, they're, you know, I will say this government is responsive. It does uh, do uh, keep very well ear close to the ground. And when something's in trouble, they respond quickly. Look at uh, the changes in the Land Act. Uh, look at what they did with the Royal BC Museum. I, true. I told one of the NDP cabinet ministers the other day, I said, you know, the big difference between this government and the NDP government of the 1990s was the one in the 1990s was so damn stubborn, it would go right over the cliff with an issue that was out of control. This one responds quickly. And I think to their credit, I think it's one of the reasons that their polling numbers have remained stable. They quickly see a problem. They generally respond fairly quickly as well. Vaughn Palmer this morning. And so more stories out of Surrey, Vaughn. And this whole books to read, not to read, I just don't understand why these school boards are doing this. Well, uh, I find it fascinating, uh, Simi, can you follow this thing in both countries. South of the border, the right wing is busy rampaging through the school districts, removing books from a library uh, for one reason or another, moral questions usually. And the left and the progressives are trying to stand up for against censorship and for free speech and kids having access to good books. And here in Surrey, we get the, uh, the other side of the political agenda, the woke folks concerned about other books uh, that are obnoxious and offensive and uh, might frighten some snowflakes and so forth. Um, and in Surrey, you've got, what is it, with a list uh, to kill a mockingbird, I think is the top of the list of mice and men. Uh, one of those books won the Pulitzer and the other one won the Nobel. Uh, but uh, they're not sure that today's students are ready for these books. So they're being okay. restricted. Ridiculous. <laughs> the premier got asked. Yes, the, the premier's weekly, or in this case, we, we had two news conferences with David Eby and Semi reporters make up lists of questions for these things because you ask David Eby a question, you might well get a story. And reporters asked him, What did you think of all this in Surrey? And man, did we get a quote? He said, Crazy, isn't it? Weird. Uh, he, he urged the Surrey School Board to rethink what it is doing, to recognize in particular that to kill a mockingbird is. I'd say in modern times, one of the most important books ever written about racism and about reconciliation and tolerance and heroism and courage in the face of adversity and all that. And he said, kids should be able to read a book like that. He also said something else that I think it's amazing to me that the would-be advocates of censorship left and right don't recognize. The premier said, you know, as uh, kids with cell phones, and many of them have them, with one click on the keyboard can access stuff online that is far worse than what is in any of these books that's that it right there. want to restrict access to. That like, is right there. When I heard that, yeah. I thought that's exactly it. Yeah, like, wake up, folks. Books aren't the threat. It's what's there, one click, and the EB government is trying to restrict that, the bringing in legislation to try to make social media carriers accountable for the stuff they allow. Whether they'll be able to pull that off, I don't know, but I thought the Premier's best point he made yesterday was 
This isn't even where the fight should be. You shouldn't be worried about books in the school library or in the classroom or on the curriculum. Uh, you should be worried about what they're clicking on when they aren't in the library in the classroom. That is so true. Um, also, what's going on with the situation at UBC? I know the premier had something to say about that too. Yeah, he did. He got asked about this in the house on Tuesday. So UBC was having uh, UBC Alma Mater Society, the student society, had a motion in front of it to hold a referendum that would essentially banish the Jewish student house, Hillel House, from the campus. And so Michael Lee, who's the MLA for Vancouver Langara, got up in the house in question period and asked uh, the new Minister of Advanced Education where she stood on that issue. And the Premier, as he sometimes does, took the question and got up. And he said he'd familiarized himself with this issue, and you could tell that he had because of what he said next. He said, I would urge the Alma Mater Society to reject the idea of this referendum, to take a stand that welcomes the Jewish Student Society on the campus and not threaten it essentially with eviction, to avoid dividing British Columbia on this issue. And he said, don't do this. Interestingly enough, uh, I was struck by the coverage on NW the next morning. Uh, the AMS took the Premier's advice. I think the Premier had checked it out and knew that was coming, and I commend him for his research. But in any event, uh, it was one of those things here where we avoided something that could have embittered and divided the campus. They made the right decision, and they took the Premier's very good advice on it. Okay, so kind of a couple of hits there, I would say, yeah, for the Premier yeah. this week. Yeah, no, as I said to you, Simi, you know, the, the one thing about David Eby, and he's had two news conferences this week, and they're all this current format now. You know, most of them, uh, we don't have big travel budgets, so most many of them, especially Press Gallery, we cover them by phone. We dial in. Uh, we've all got our list of questions, and as I said, you know, you you – Ask David Eby a question. He tends to be very well briefed. He tends to know. Don't very often hear him unprepared. And often he'll say something. This is an election year, after all, that will generate a news story. So it's uh, pretty good pickings, uh, whatever else you think about what's going on. In fact, you tend to get more stuff hmm. out of these news conferences, Simi, than you do out of question period where most of the time the government's answers are there are to give nothing to the opposition parties and simply remind the opposition, particularly BC United, that when they were in government, they destroyed British Columbia and the New Democrats have been trying to clean up the mess ever since. So you don't get much out of question period. You do get a lot out of uh, news conference. It's a very effective way at resetting the conversation. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and, you know, it's election year. So we're like, yeah. we're trying to follow this dynamic day by day and not get too far ahead of the curve because uh, yeah, it's not over till it's over. Uh, we discovered that in 2013. Don't assume the election's over till the votes are counted. Uh, and uh, we've been reminded of that uh, from time to time. We are. Uh, Vaughn, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That is Bob Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. I will be watching very closely today to see what that whole announcement is for Surrey schools. I know there's a lot of parents, teachers, administrators, everybody who wants to see that situation improve. Will this be what was missing in the budget last week? We'll keep it tuned in here for the very latest on that. 
This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's find out what's been going on in the United States this week. As always, the list is long. It's a good thing we have Reggie Cicchini with us, our Washington correspondent for Global News. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. All right, let's start, as we always seem to start with legal stuff, don't we? There's always some legal case going on. I mean, it's Donald Trump. There's always something going on legally uh, with him. That's true. Okay, let's start with the trial. Which one are we talking about today? Well, uh, today, uh, I mean, if we want to talk today, today, uh, the trial in Florida is going to be in the spotlight. And that is because uh, we are going to find out whether or not the uh, mishandled classified documents case that was brought by the special counsel in the state of Florida when a trial date could be set. Uh, There has been some concern here that the judge in charge of the case has been purposely trying to slow walk things in order to, you know, prevent this from going to a date. The special counsel is expected to ask for something in and around maybe the beginning of July, in and around July 8th to 10th. We don't know if Judge Cannon is going to accept that. Um, And it's because there are other matters at play here, and that includes if and when a potential D.C. trial could take place uh, into the election subversion. That's all going to be dependent on when the Supreme Court comes out with a decision after they decided to take the appeal earlier this week. Okay, and then what is the consequence of that then? Because they decided to take the appeal, but it could be a while, right? Right. They decided to take the appeal, and and, and most legal experts that I spoke to, including former Justice Department uh, lawyers, uh, were, were a little surprised that the Supreme Court decided to take this, feeling that the initial lower court ruling here in the district uh, was ironclad, that Donald Trump doesn't have uh, immunity from prosecution. Uh, but the Supreme Court decided to hear it, possibly because it's an untested matter, and they want to be able to put a final say on this. But, you know, they fast-tracked the, the Colorado case. They fast-tracked other things in the past. They're slow-walking this. They're not not hearing arguments now until April 22nd, and then a decision is not likely to come down until June. What's important here, Simi? The subversion case was supposed to start on March 4th. That's clearly not going to happen now. The question is, does it happen maybe later this summer? Does the election subversion case happen maybe in and around the election or after the election? And if Donald Trump wins the election, what does that do? Hmm. Okay, so there's that. Uh, let's also talk about some of the primaries, the elections that happened in the past week. Uh, we, we had some uh, really interesting results out of Michigan. Yeah, look, uh, for, for Joe Biden, especially interesting because it shows that there are policies that are underway right now from the White House that are having an immediate impact on his popularity. Uh, and in particular in Michigan, 100,000 plus voters opted to vote for an uncommitted vote rather than vote for Joe Biden because they are unhappy with how the White House is moving forward with policies on the Israel-Hamas war, notably uh, the humanitarian crisis that is underway in Gaza. Michigan has one of the largest uh, Arab uh, American and Muslim American populations in the United States. And this protest vote against Joe Biden, um, you know, there were only 700,000 people on the Democratic Party that came out to vote. One in seven of them didn't vote for Joe Biden. This is now an issue for him to try and overcome um, because there are other states that allow for uncommitted votes. And the war in Israel, uh, you know, we don't know when that's going to wrap up. If it hasn't wrapped up by November, there's a risk here that that parts of the Democratic Party don't turn out for Joe Biden. Doesn't mean they're going to vote for Donald Trump, but it could right. mean that the couch ends up winning uh, in that people simply don't come out to vote. This, this is a this is a new climb for a mm. president already facing poor approval numbers. That's so interesting because that's kind of the equivalent on the Democratic side of what on the Republican side you see 
people who are still voting for Nikki Haley or voting for candidates other than Donald Trump saying that they they may not vote for him when the time comes. Yeah. And, and look, this is both parties are trying to grapple with this right now. On the Republican side, the question is, come November, where do these kind of 20 and 30 and 40 percent of voters that are in states voting for Nikki Haley, where do they go? Do they you know eventually come home to roost and go to Donald Trump or do they go to Joe Biden later this year? If there's a big group of people who are saying, look, we don't want to vote for Joe Biden because of his policies, uh, his foreign policy decisions in the White House, there may be no bringing those people back. The flip side that Democrats are trying to work on now is, well, if you don't vote for Joe Biden, are you going to vote for Donald Trump? Remember, Donald Trump is the person who put uh, the president who put a Muslim ban in place. Is that where you want your vote to go? So Democrats are trying to figure this out. At the same time, Republicans are also trying to figure out what to do with these voters that aren't going with Trump. All right. Lots of pressure there for sure. Now, Super Tuesday is coming up, right? It is. uh, Super Tuesday Obviously, coming up this Tuesday, we need to get through a couple of primaries this weekend, including the District of Columbia, which starts today. And it could actually be Nikki Haley's first and and maybe only chance to actually win uh, a primary. But there are 15 states and one territory uh, on Tuesday that are holding their primaries. Donald Trump is, is widely expected to win the vast majority of them. And if he does so, it could lock up his ability to claim um, the nomination if not on Tuesday, within a couple of primaries from Tuesday. Uh, and this would realistically set up what everyone has been expecting, is that it will be a Trump versus Biden um, uh, uh, election later this year. We don't know if Nikki Haley is going to drop out after Super Tuesday. If she does poorly, I mean, the math is impossible for her. Um, but sh- she's she's staying in because people are still donating to her campaign. If she loses on Tuesday by a big margin, right. we need to see if those dollars still exist. Okay, now there's that to watch for coming up next Tuesday. Now, what is going on with this whole Alabama state decision regarding IVF? Right. So what we had was the Alabama Supreme Court uh, come out and say that embryos are considered children. And and what that resulted from was uh, a couple had gone into a fertility clinic and some of the embryos had been destroyed accidentally and they sued uh, and they sued on the state that uh, on the status of that this was, um, you know, harm and death to uh, to a minor. Uh, and the Supreme Court upheld that and, and used a whole bunch of quotes from the Bible to say that embryos are now considered children. So clinics stopped performing IVF because the question was if if an embryo is inadvertently destroyed or if embryos are destroyed after the fact, we don't want to be held criminally liable. What did the state do? Well, they, you know, they realized Republicans here are kind of the dog that caught the car and, you know, they caught it. Now they don't know what to do. The state actually went back and said, look, we're going to protect IVF across this state, but it's going to have a sunset clause in it of, of next April, meaning that, you know, after the election, maybe things are going to change. Senate Republicans here in Washington opted to not roll out any kind of federal protections for IVF. So realistically, what we're seeing here is in a post row world in the United States, um, you know, the issue of, of reproductive rights is still front and center. Republicans are unclear of what to do because they're party is kind of, you know, trying to fight it out with with religious groups um, and Democrats are seizing again. And you are seeing this once again be thrust to the center stage here. Um, you know, this issue in, in Alabama that has tied Republicans up and they're not sure how to get out of this knot now. Yeah, this doesn't seem like it comes at a very good time. Like in this election year, it seems like something that everybody is going to hold. It got a lot of attention really suddenly. 
Sure, it got a lot of attention, and that's because look, in 2020, Democrats came out and said if Republicans win, they will go after Republican, uh, they will go after reproductive rights. Then in 2022, post Roe, Democrats said, look at what Republicans have done. Now here we are approaching 2024, where in the post Roe world, there were concerns IVF would be targeted. That's what's now being targeted. This could be a motivating factor for Democrats, particularly when you have someone like Joe Biden, where age is a factor, where the war in the Middle East is a factor. But if they can get a domestic issue that really drives home a message, that could be what they need to get Democrats out. Right, it's so interesting. All right, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. That is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, bringing us up to date on a few of the big stories out of the United States in the past week. And of course, next week, I will be watching closely to see what happens on Super Tuesday. That's always a pretty consequential thing in a presidential election year, right? This is Mornings with Simi. Is it possible to take the modern world and the things that come with it and then use it to benefit ancient, more historical ways? I mean, that is the struggle, isn't it? It is a project that is being tackled by Inuit elders and hunters. It's an app, actually, that is transforming how Indigenous communities across the Arctic actually share information and, most importantly, traditional wisdom what a cool idea this is. We're going to learn all about it right now with Lisi Kavik-Mikiuk, who is the Inuit Nunagat Siku coordinator with the Arctic Eider Society. Lisi, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So tell me about this app. How did this get started? A number of years ago, I think now uh, since uh, 2000. 17, 18, um, they decided that they were going to uh, create an app that was going to help with monitoring um, the wildlife. Okay. And also, where are you right now, Lisi? Where are you calling us from? I am located on the Belcher Islands in Hudson Bay in a community called Sunny Kilowack, Nunavut. I'm thinking you're probably one of the first, maybe only guests that we've had calling us from that area before. So thank you for making the time to do this. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's a a big deal for us. So tell me, how much of a difference does it make that you can have an app that you can kind of share knowledge with other communities? We've had so many problems in the past where officials and researchers and other organizations uh, come and tell us that we don't have any evidence. We don't have any solid evidence that's written about what you're telling us uh, related to anything from wildlife to climate change to uh, contents of animal stomachs and, and things like that. So for for the SICO app to come out, now all these people that in the past that have said that there's no evidence, now we have the evidence. Now we have an app that, that can record a person's track, a person's post, contents of animals, and after all the posts that people have made, then we can make graphs, and the graphs can show us how much animals have been harvested, of what species, and when they're most harvested harvested in, a, in the year. So it's wonderful. 
was it hard to get people to use this app or did people embrace it right away? In the community, in our community, um, we are a very small community. It started here in our community, and they held workshops with the hunters that allowed for the hunters to learn firsthand and be able to ask questions. And so, uh, it was embraced really well. It's it's become uh, known across the north since then. Okay, so it sounds like you're getting pretty good usage of this. We are, and it has helped a lot, when, especially when we're dealing with the government or um, WWF or um, hmm. other organizations that um, work with the North. So we're able to show. How, how do you overcome sort of the different kind of cultural barriers there, Lisi? I mean, different languages, different communities, different ways of kind of recording information? Right now, uh, the app is in English and French, but just recently I translated it into Institute. It's Sanikiloak Mil Dialect Institute, and I think eventually other communities may uh, put it in their own language, and I'm, there's a First Nations Cree out of James Bay that are looking at translating it into their language, so it's, it's doable. What an amazing thing. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about it today. Wonderful. Thank you for making the effort to call us from so far away. That is Lisi Kavik-Mikiak, uh, who is the Inuit Nunungat Siku coordinator with the Arctic Eider Society. Like we are talking way up there in Hudson Bay. And they are talking about this new app that they have been using. And all the different kind of very small communities can use this tool. And it helps them to kind of share knowledge, traditional wisdom about animals or, or just things out there in the community, out in the wild. And then this is something that they've never had before where they can kind of confirm what they see and what they do, and they have a way to record all of it. So there are some things, it seems like, that the modern world can teach us that we can kind of improve upon from the past, for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Our negotiators believe that while difficulties may always arise, no major obstacles remain to the ironing out of outstanding language issues. That is the Prime Minister that ushered in the free trade agreement with the United States. In fact, that's what Brian Mulroney was talking about there. He made a deal to get rid of acid rain, started the work to fix the ozone layer, and of course, have to say, also gave us the GST, tried to bring Quebec into the Constitution with Meech Lake. So there were highs and there were lows, but there's no doubt that Brian Mulroney was an incredibly consequential Prime Minister that really redefined how Canada was seen on the international stage. His family announced late yesterday afternoon that the former PM has passed away at the age of 84. Now, if you read one piece today about the history of Brian Mulroney, make it the piece that our next guest has written. John Ibbotson is a political columnist for the Globe and Mail newspaper and joins us now. John, thank you for being here. Well, thank you. Good to be here. Well, can I just say that first anecdote that you relate about the free trade agreement and how it got done, it is just so historical. It's so great. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, We were literally in the last hours of the negotiations, and it was clear that the deal was going to fail. 
was going to fail because the Americans absolutely would not permit a dispute resolution mechanism in the agreement, and Canada absolutely insisted on it. Um, so the Canadian team phoned Brian Mulroney from Washington to say the deal is going to fail. And Mulroney did one, made one last bid. He contacted James Baker, who was the lead negotiator at, at the time, and said, I'm going to call uh, Ronnie, and I'm going to, President Ronald Reagan, and I'm going to ask him, Ron, how come you can sign uh, a, a nuclear reduction agreement with your worst enemy, the Soviet Union, and you can't sign a trade agreement with your best friend, Canada? And Mr. Baker was so appalled at the thought of such a conversation uh, that he walked in 20 minutes later, slammed a piece of paper on the desk and said, there's your your, um, uh, trade mechanism. Uh, Now let's go take it to Congress. (laughs) And uh, from that, we managed to get a free trade agreement between Canada and the United States, which literally transformed the Canadian economy. God, that's so, that is such a consequential thing. I don't, people don't realize how tough it was at that time to kind of get that passed. What made Mulroney a unique prime minister, do you think? I think uh, for all of his charm and for all of his blarney, um, uh, for all of his sometimes not being exactly uh, precise with the truth, um, he identified those things that he thought mattered most to Canada and then pursued them relentlessly. He believed that Canada need to moder- needed to modernize its economy through free trade, and he relentlessly, relentlessly pursued free trade. He thought that had to be brought into the constitutional agreement, and he fought relentlessly, failed, uh, but fought relentlessly through the Nietzsche Lake and Charlottetown Accords to achieve that. He believed that Canada, the federal government's finances, um, we had been in deficit since the early 1970s, had to be reformed, and he brought in the GST. The GST was wildly unpopular. It's still not loved very much today. But it was that tax that made it possible for the Gretchen government to then balance the budget. So um, whether he succeeded or he failed, he always tried for the, for the biggest things. Uh, and, and that's not something we see so much in politicians these days. How did he change how Canada was perceived in the world? Uh, again, that was transformative. We were at the at, in the the peak of the Cold War. Ronald Reagan was calling the Soviet Union the evil empire. <clears throat> Mulroney was right there with him. But as soon as uh, uh, Gorbachev arrived, and it was clear that the, the there might be cracks in the Iron Curtain, Mulroney worked behind the scenes, but very effectively uh, with the British, with the French, and especially with the Americans and the Russians to help uh, broker agreements. He was also um, the world leader in opposing uh, apartheid. Both the Americans and the British were prepared to sort of turn away from one of South Africa, South Africa as an ally. Well, Rooney was resolute in opposing apartheid. And when Nelson Mandela was freed from prison, um, one of the very first phone calls he made uh, was to Brian Mulroney to thank him for his support. So I think all in all, um, under both Reagan and George H.W. Bush during the Kuwait War, the Gulf War, um, Canada stood tall in the Council of Nations under Brian Mulroney. All right, let's talk about some of the things that didn't go as well. And I think to be clear, we are still to this day dealing with the fallout of some of those things, like the failed agreement to try to bring Quebec into the Constitution, which ended up, you know, the rupture in federal politics with the creation of the Bloc Québécois. And the and, and the and Reform Party as well. Yes. It's, it's true. Um Ms. Mulroney fought hard to bring Quebec into the Constitution. He failed. And that failure tested the very limits of the country. Um, we would come extremely close uh, during the 1995 referendum on separation of Quebec, which basically proceeded from the failures of Meech and Charlottetown. Um, 
he tried to bring Western Canadian interests uh, into his government. But in the end, uh, Westerners felt that they were still on the outside, that he was finally a Laurentian, Quebec, Central Canadian prime minister. And that led to Manning uh, to create the Reform Party. And as you said, Lucien Bouchard took much of the Quebec caucus with him when he created the Bloc Québécois. I mean, one of the ultimate legacies of Brian Mulroney is that in the 1993 election, the Progressive Conservative Party was reduced to two seats. It never recovered. On the other hand, you can also say that he was one of the people who worked effectively behind the scenes to broker that estrangement, um, leading to the merger of the PCs and the Canadian Alliance to create the Conservative Party that Stephen Harper led for more than a decade. I've also, John, heard him described in the last 24 hours as one of the most environmentally minded prime ministers we've ever had. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, he didn't get enough credit at the time, but has, got, has gotten far more credit since. Um, he, he negotiated the acid rain accord with the United States. He was a leader in the campaign to, to ban coal fluorocarbons, which was uh, damaging the ozone layer. Um, there were water quality and air quality agreements as well uh, with the United States on his watch. Uh, we live in a cleaner world because of Brian Mulroney. And that is, that's so interesting. I think people kind of forget that too. And, and post-political life, when he left office, there was a lot of working behind the scenes too, wasn't there? There was a lot of working behind the scenes to broker the agreement to create the Conservative Party of Canada. But also, we have to be honest, uh, this was also the period in which he was accused of perhaps taking a bribe. Uh, certainly, he agreed to take several hundred thousand dollars in cash, um, and it may or may not have been related uh, to the acquisition of aircraft the Airbus scandal, as it's called. Um, it was, in fact, the, the thing that most tarnished Brian Mulroney's legacy happened after he left office. Uh, but he also uh, continued to work um, re- with uh, Canada and the United States, especially when Donald Trump became president, to protect the North American Free Trade Agreement, in which he was instrumental in creating in the first place. And that, too, will be seen as part of his legacy. And that's part of the irony here, too, is that when Justin Trudeau became prime minister, he did turn to Mulroney for advice, didn't he? And Mulroney was impressed with Justin Trudeau. Uh, there was no love lost between Brian Mulroney and Stephen Harper towards the end uh, because of the Airbus affair. Uh, and it was Mulroney who first, uh, not first, but certainly among the first um, major leaders who uh, said, watch this Justin Trudeau. He's got something and he's going to be a force to be reckoned with. So interesting. John, thank you for talking to us about it this morning. It has been my pleasure. That is John Ibbotson. John is a political columnist at the Globe and Mail, has written just a fantastic piece about the life, the legacy, the good and the bad of former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, who passed away yesterday. The family announced it at the age of 84. And uh, John, I think, very adequately pointed out that, yes, there were some great accomplishments, but there were also some legacies there that Canada is, quite frankly, still grappling with today. It is complicated for sure. But again, you could check that out at the Globe and Mail's website. It's John Ibbotson's piece on Brian Mulroney. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, it is that time of year again. We are kicking off the Vancouver Whitecaps season, and it is a special one. Joining us now is Vanny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Morning, coach. Morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. Are you ready for this? Of course I'm ready for this. Like, you know, we have two months of preseason to get ready. So if I wouldn't be ready, it would be a problem. It would be a problem. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm asking. Uh, Also, you've got a huge crowd that is coming in tomorrow for this game. Yes, we already sold uh, 28,000 tickets. So I think it's the biggest home opener ever for the for the um, for the club. So it's uh, it's the kickoff of our 50th anniversary 
as a soccer club, so it's gonna be it's gonna be fantastic. So now we just have to perform and deliver. So to be honest, I'm excited, but I'm also under pressure this year. So we'll see. Well, this is why I was asking if you're okay because I'm like, that's a lot of pressure, right? You got to win with twenty eight thousand people coming and the kickoff to the fiftieth anniversary. Did you buy new socks for this? Uh, no, I haven't buy any new socks, but, uh, you know, maybe they'll do because, you know, we need, uh, we need a fresh uh, perspective. Last year, the season was very good, but uh, we want to do something special this year. So I'll buy, I'll buy something that, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna bring luck to the good. <laughs> yeah, that's what we want to hear. Okay. Let's talk about uh, upgrades to the lineup then over the last few months. What are you happy with? What do you think? Okay. This is good. Well, you know, we worked a lot. We we introduced uh, the new players that we signed. It was not, uh, you know, a, a revolution. We, the core of the group is more or less the same as last year. We added two new offensive players, Damir Kailak and Fafa Pico, and two defenders, uh, uh, Bjorn Utvik and Bilal Albuni. And, uh, you know, we, we needed uh, these new faces, especially... Uh, in the offensive one, because last year Ryan and Brian did a fantastic season, but uh, we need a little bit of more, more variation. So we we hope to be like as consistent as we were last year, but even with a little bit more of flair offensively. Right, and it's uh, like uh, you know, it's like adding your chili flakes to the pizza, so kind of something like this. Also, great <laughs> analogy. I love that. <laughs> but also, better start right, like making sure that the consistency is there from the very beginning, so you don't have to play catch up at some point in the season. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Last year we did uh, very good, but uh, we didn't make a win until the game six, and that's actually limited a lot to the the possibility to finish in the top four. That is, uh, I would say, our really uh, big dream and big objective for, for this season. So starting well and doing points at the beginning is going to be critical this year. Well, you're going to have the crowd for it tomorrow for sure. So listen, good luck, coach. Thank you so much, Jimmy. All right, we'll talk to you next week. That is Vanny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Home opener is tomorrow. Huge crowd, 28,000 people expected to be on hand for that. They are playing Charlotte. It's also the kickoff to the 50th anniversary of the Vancouver Whitecaps uh, being here. It's going to be great, right? They're going to have a great year. We talk to the coach every Friday morning. This is Mornings with Simi. Those who are suggesting that it should be banned, uh, they just need to give it a read. Uh, to understand the power of To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, people are not happy on either side of this next issue. You just heard the Premier's thoughts on that. The Surrey School Board is no longer recommending four classic books as part of its reading list. Now, if you like these books, then you can't believe that they're pulling them from the list. If you think it's time to revisit this book list, well, then you believe this is about updating for more accurate representations of racism and history. And I have been hearing from people on both sides of that this morning. So my feeling is this is history, right? These books have important historical perspective. Ironically, I read three of these in the Surrey school system growing up there. And there are excellent and important discussions that you can have with these books, not only about the time they represent, but the time in which they were written. And I agree with the Premier when he says To Kill a Mockingbird in particular is an excellent book and that maybe we should worry more about what the kids are reading online rather than the books. But without, let's let's put this in a little more perspective this morning. So joining us now is Florian Gastner, an Associate Professor of Teaching at the University of British Columbia. Florian, thank you for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Is this a process that happens occasionally where books are updated and some books just don't make that list? 
it's a process that fortunately happens all the time that we keep asking these questions of the books, not just whether they're good books or bad books, but more importantly, we are using these books not just to teach these children appreciation of literature, but to teach other messages. And the question always is not, is To Kill a Mockingbird a great book or not? But in the three, four generations that have passed in the meantime, have maybe other books been written that are more apt to teaching the lessons we want to teach the young people? So then why do you think this becomes so sensitive? A lot of it, I think, has to do with a spillover from the United States where these books are not just reconsidered, they are challenged, and you arrive at absurd situations where books like The Diary of Anne Frank are removed, not just from curricula, but from bookshelves, because Anne Frank discusses intimate parts of the female body. And on the other hand, it's just that like you, my, our generation, David Eby, we still remember when we were in school and reading these books and we learned important lessons from them. They had a massive impact on ourselves. And so uh, we cherish that memory of learning these lessons, of feeling enlightened after encountering these. But then, of course, you need to have the professionals come in and say, well, um, could we also procure resources that are more attuned to today's society so the students learn those lessons relevant for their contexts? Okay, so what do you think of this decision then? Um, I think in this case, especially considering what's happening south of the border, I appreciate the measured approach that they took here, that they apparently had a year-long consultation with different stakeholders, and that the question, <clears throat> apologies, that the question really was, what could the best teaching resources be to impart lessons about racism, about marginalization, about discrimination on the students in our classrooms right now. Okay. So you feel like as lo the books that they will replace this with, I'm sure are good. They're excellent books. I know one of them is a Toni Morrison book. One of them is the Colson Whitehead book. Those are all great books. But it's also about making sure these books remain available to students, right? Yeah. And that's the other thing where what's happening here is very different from what's happening in the United States because they're, uh, the book challenges typically address the availability of the book. So they are removed from school libraries. They are removed from public libraries, which is uh, inconceivable because these are not private libraries, but public institutions where people should be able to go and inform themselves to participate in the democratic process. And in this case, in the Surrey School District had made it very clear from the beginning, these books will remain on the shelves they are there for when teachers make a good argument that they would rather teach with To Kill a Mockingbird, they can retrieve it from those shelves. But at the same time, they're just looking at the curriculum and where they could possibly add value. I guess also what I wonder, Florian, is this not also an opportunity for a teacher to, to say, teach To Kill a Mockingbird and talk about this wider discussion like you and I are having right now? This is what's happening in society just because we are teaching and reading To Kill a Mockingbird. That is an absolutely valid point, and I'm pretty sure that for the past 10, 20 years, teachers have been having that conversation because uh, one of the big issues is how the use of the N-word and the depiction, the one-dimensional depiction of uh, black citizens in the United States uh, could be possibly re-traumatizing for students reading those books. And so teachers had to have that conversation. But then the question is... Uh, 
could you not just add a, a different angle to the conversation right. without running that risk of re-traumatizing young people? This is what I wonder is not dragging this and not making this a bigger deal and not turning it into a huge controversy is saying we're going to change the discussion around this. And yet that doesn't seem to be the approach anybody takes. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, again, they've been doing that for 20 years, but uh, you're also framing the discussion about a book that's, what is it, 80 years old about something that happened 100 years ago. So the question is whether this discussion just gets you stuck in the past also when uh, the image of racism and marginalized communities has changed quite a bit and whether you need to make more space to also have that conversation then. Okay, so then Florian, I know that people are going to get worked up about this, right? Because we read the headlines, we read the first couple of lines and people don't look deeper. What do you think people need to keep in mind with this story? The thing to keep in mind is you want to look at how the process unfolds. And that's the one thing I, as a, I'm not a Canadian myself, so I'm not attuned to the process, but from the outside, it seems that the Surrey district here made an effort to design a process that works, that is equitable, that takes in the voices of different stakeholders. And if they pass that bar, if it seems measured, if it seems well thought out, then you can rest uh, calmly knowing that they have the best interest of the community in mind. But at this point, I'm not knowledgeable about it. I'm not sure if there is a province-wide or even Canada-wide uh, system in place to facilitate these discussions. So you always want to look at how these decisions are reached and whether indeed they consulted stakeholders that are have something uh, to lose or to say in this environment. That's a good question to ask. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Florian. Well, thank you too. Have a good day. You too. That's Florian Gassner, an associate professor of teaching at the University of British Columbia, talking about the process by which you know, books are updated on a recommended reading list, which is what the Surrey School District says is actually happening here, that these books will be available, the district says, in the library, but it won't be necessarily recommended for teaching in class. Teacher can actually make the argument to use it. But again, it kind of just opens up, I think people of our age, my age, we get uncomfortable with it because we think, well, wait a minute, it was, it was good enough for us and I learned valuable lessons reading that book. Why are we not passing on those same valuable lessons? But it's about can we pass those valuable lessons on in a better way? And I don't know. We don't know because we're not being taught by these new measures. And I just, for me, I did, I did love those books and I did learn them in the Surrey school system. And, and they were really valuable lessons. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. I know there's going to be more discussion about this for sure. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.